0: It's good to see you all, it's good to be together. We're continuing this morning in the Gospel of Mark. Just a little context before we read our text for the morning. We're picking up in Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 14, and the verses right before this, Peter, James, and John have been up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus had been transfigured in front of them, and, and we're picking up right after this Happens. It reads like this When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. I've been thinking this week about magnetic people, People who just attract others. And the reason I started thinking about this, actually there are two. One is this text. We'll come back to that in a second. The other is that we went and saw a movie recently about the Jesus people movement back in the early 70s. And one of the things that captures me about that revival that happened back in the early late 60s, early 70s was how magnetically attracted to Jesus, people were. We've talked about this before, but I'm captivated by this, by the image that the Gospels give us and by the conversations that I have with people outside the church who are completely, um, well, at at a minimum, intrigued by Jesus, but are drawn by Jesus. Jesus. In fact, we saw it in this text, didn't we, in verse 15 at the beginning of this story. Jesus comes down from the mountain with the three disciples, and they come to the other disciples, and there is arguing going on, which, you know, you get a bunch of religious people in a group, and what happens, right? (laughs) That wasn't in my notes, that's just a freebie. (laughs) But what captivated me was verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed, overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. I'm captivated by this image. And as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, it has always been the thing that both drives me and drives me crazy. Is that how come those of us who, who seek to follow Jesus don't seem to have the same effect on people as Jesus did? Why is it that when we hear these descriptions that people were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet Jesus. It always is troubling to me that generally when we ask people, even Christian people, to describe their church family, they don't use words like overwhelmed with wonder. They don't use words like we, ran, we run there every week. Right? And I wish that we would. I wish that our experience of Jesus was so profound. I wish that our, the imprint of Jesus was so deep on our lives that when people looked at us, they were overwhelmed with wonder. Not because we're so holy or righteous or we are so moral or whatever, but we're so much like Jesus that people can't help but be overwhelmed with wonder. And I know that's not true about me. What is it? How is it that the presence of Jesus, the Spirit is so strong in Jesus that people, when they just see Him, He just walks into the vicinity and people are overwhelmed with wonder and they run to Him. I don't have the answer for that other than to say that maybe we need to spend more time with Jesus. Now, moving on with the story, we have this image. So Jesus has come down. He's just been transfigured. And um, his disciples have tried to deliver this boy who's possessed by a spirit that... um, Gives him convulsions and robs him of speech. But his disciples can't do it. The man says that he asked uh, your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. And literally, the text, if, if we were to do a more literal translation of the phrase there, it's that the disciples were not strong enough to do it. But there's also some other things going on because Jesus then goes on to say, you unbelieving generation. Now whenever he uses this phrase, he's talking not just to his disciples, he's talking to the group, right? So please notice that, and we'll come back to this later, uh, that Jesus does not condemn the disciples for a lack of faith, And commentators suggest that this is similar to what happened when Jesus went home to Nazareth and he couldn't really do much there because of their unbelief. And I don't want to put too much weight into that whole scenario because oftentimes we take principles from that 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 actually are not where Jesus was bringing us. But the reality of that unbelief impedes the work of the Spirit. And so the father of this boy comes when Jesus comes, says, If you can do anything, if you can do anything, it's easy for us to hear the father say this. And to think, what an unbelieving person. No wonder that the disciples couldn't heal him. He didn't have faith, right? But I wonder if instead we can hear the the desperate cry of this father. Remember, this is a father who has brought his son for healing, he's brought his son who has been tormented by this demon. His whole life, it's thrown him into fire, it's thrown him into water. This father is desperate and he's brought his son to Jesus and Jesus wasn't there and so his disciples say, oh yeah, we can take care of this. And imagine the disappointment. His last hope. Maybe, I mean imagine this, maybe he hears about Jesus and he thinks, well maybe, maybe this is, maybe he, he can deliver my son. Now, Notice all the the details that we don't have in this story. We don't know how far he's come from. We don't know how long of a journey it was. But we do know that this is a desperate parent. And this desperate parent has traveled and and brought this boy to, to Jesus' disciples. And maybe that was just the last straw. Can anybody relate to that? You ever been in a season of life where finally there's a glimmer of hope and you seize it and you follow it and you grab onto it and then you're disappointed again? Maybe the failure of the disciples to be able to deliver this boy depleted whatever faith this father had left. And he just, he's exhausted, bent, Depleted by the journey that they have been on. Which makes the cry of verse 24 even more poignant. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And this father cries out, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus, the father was asking Jesus for practical help. He's asking for his son to be delivered. He's come showing faith. And I think it's so important to recognize in this story that faith does not have to be pure or perfect. It just has to be present. You see, this father came. He has at least a mustard seed kernel of faith. Or he wouldn't be there at all. But maybe he used up half of that mustard seed just to get to Jesus. And then when he gets to Jesus, the disciples step in because Jesus is up on the mountain and they can't deliver. And maybe now it's only a quarter mustard seed of faith. But faith doesn't have to be pure or perfect or even whole. It just has to be present. And Jesus says, bring the boy to me. Now there's so much going on in this story. I love what happens next because it's easily missed. Verse 25 says, When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene. Now this is where Mark's narrative gets a little messy, right? Because they came down, there was a crowd, and they were fighting. But, and so apparently what's happened is Jesus has taken the boy and they've stepped aside or they've moved aside. They're trying to get some privacy, and Jesus has this exchange with the boy's father and then he sees that the crowd is coming and so he heals the boy before the crowd arrives. Now, this is interesting because brothers and sisters in modern day America, in modern day American Christianity, we are still obsessed with crowds. I don't mean to alarm anybody, but we seem to think that the bigger the congregation, the deeper the truth that's being preached. Or the deeper the Spirit's presence is, or the deeper the faith is. And Jesus is demonstrating the exact opposite here. He sees the crowd coming, and before they can get there, he delivers the boy because he doesn't seem to want to stir them up any further. But he does want that boy delivered. Jesus heals before the crowd arrives. So the size of the congregation does not equal spiritual presence. Also, go back to the very beginning. You faithless generation, remember that Jesus seems to be pointing out that it's the unbelief of the crowd, at least in part, that impeded the disciples from being able to heal In this instance, just like he could not do certain things in Nazareth, apparently. So then the disciples and Jesus go indoors. And the disciples, as they often do, get to have a more uh, intimate, a deeper conversation with Jesus. And so they ask him, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus responds, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, some interesting things here in this part of the text. I think sometimes we read this story and we interpret what's happening or what Jesus is saying is that, well, the disciples needed better techniques. Because, brothers and sisters, just like we believe that a bigger congregation means there's more spiritual presence or more truth or whatever it is that we believe about big crowds, We believe it about uh, techniques, too. We think that it's the technique that matters instead of the content. Or at least maybe we don't intend to think that, but that's how we behave. The disciples don't need better techniques. What Jesus is talking about is not some technique of prayer. What he's talking about is presence. Because you notice what Jesus didn't do What didn't Jesus do before he healed this boy? Pray. This kind only comes out by prayer, but Jesus doesn't pray right before he casts this demon out. So what he's saying is not that the disciples need better techniques and he's not suggesting that prayer is some kind of magical incantation that if you say the right words and pray the right prayer before you cast the demon out that that's going to work. What he's talking about is a deep, present life with God. He's talking about the kind of prayer, the kind of communion that Jesus has. In other words, You know, when Paul talks about praying without ceasing, that's the kind of life that Jesus is talking about. Because notice also what Jesus doesn't do when the disciples say, well, Jesus, why couldn't we cast this demon out? He says, well, this kind only comes out with prayer. But he doesn't say, and because you didn't have any faith. Isn't that interesting? The assumption we make is that the disciples couldn't do it because of their lack of faith. But at least reading between the lines in the Gospel of Mark, we know that the disciples have done this before. This is not new activity for them. And Jesus doesn't tell them in private, well, guys, again, you're doubting. Again, you don't have any faith. That's not what he says. What Jesus seems to be pointing the disciples to is that they simply need to be more present with God. One of my favorite devotional writers named Ronald Rolheiser says this. Is a good word for us. He says, "God cannot be thought, but God can be met." Through awe and wonder we experience God, and there, as mystics have always stated, we understand more by not understanding than by understanding. In that posture, we let God be God. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is that it's, it's through that deep communion with God, that kind of prayer, that gives the power that they needed to deliver this boy. And there's a whole lot about this healing that we don't understand. Okay? So, one of the the other things that I think we would do well to be cautious about is we love to extract principles from this kind of story, and sometimes those principles are good, other times, not so much. Right? Instead of being drawn into the wonder of God bringing wholeness and healing, right? We're right back to that technique. We want to, we want to develop a technique instead of recognizing that no, God's inviting us into the mystery of his presence and of the kingdom's presence. Another thing to notice about this story that I love is that this episode in the Gospel of Mark follows the pattern of of cruciformity. Remember, we talked about cruciformity last week. That is the cross-shaped life. It follows that pattern. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, that we don't particularly like that pattern as Western people. We would prefer that the pattern looks like this. Faith leads to glory, healing, resurrection, wealth, all that stuff right faith directly to wholeness and shalom and you know that's where the prosperity gospel comes from but the way of jesus is faith death and then resurrection notice what happens in this story jesus They take the boy aside. Jesus commands that the demon come out. The demon comes out, but the boy appears dead. And Jesus says in verse 27, or verse 27 it says, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. Now there's something that Mark's doing here because this is the third time Notice that number. The third time that he's done this in the Gospel of Mark. Just real quickly. In Mark 1, Jesus takes Peter's feverish mother-in-law by the hand. Same word. In Mark 5, Jesus takes the corpse of Jairus' daughter by the hand and commands it, to arise, same word. And here, Jesus takes the hand of the corpse-like boy and raises him. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of this passage and the beauty of the work of Jesus is that Jesus offers us his hand Jesus offers us, us his hand, but the, but the hard reality is, is that in order for that hand to be offered, we might need, actually I don't think we might need, we do need to be dead. If we want to experience the resurrection, the rising, then we have to experience the death. That is life in the pattern of Jesus. He invites us into the life of the kingdom, but the only way into the kingdom is through the cross. In fact, in the ancient church, in the baptismal pattern, Paul says this in Romans, that when we're baptized, we are baptized into Christ's death and brought up in his resurrection, right? Right? The pattern of the life of Jesus is through the cross. So friends, I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Perhaps like the father of this boy, you are on your last thread and the thread is fraying. But Jesus offers you his hand. There is hope in the midst of seeming death. There is resurrection for those who think that everything is dead. Jesus is present, and he stretches out his hand to you. Will you take it? Amen.